hey, there were two uptown pastors, sophisticated guys. They were asked to speak at a gathering on the other side of the tracks. Well, when they arrived, they walked into a room full of drug addicts and prostitutes and street people. Both men had prepared these very sophisticated lectures. The first pastor, he turned to his colleague and he said, man, I'm in trouble. My sermon's not going to work with this crowd. The second pastor, he admitted, me too. The initial pastor, he whispered a solution. He says, I'll tell you what. I'll take the prodigal son out to a far country, and you can bring him back home. (laughs) You know, if you are conscious of your sin, it's impossible not to be moved with emotion by the parable of the prodigal son. No other passage conveys as convincingly to us the hope of God's forgiveness. But the story of the prodigal son was really only one parable in a set of three. In Luke chapter 15, Jesus talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and then a lost son. Well, verse 1 tells us, Then all the tax collectors and the sinners drew near to him to hear him. Isn't that interesting? There was something about Jesus that attracted sinners. I like what author Philip Yancey writes. He says, Somehow we have created a community of respectability in the church. The down and out who flocked to Jesus when he lived on earth no longer feel welcome. How did Jesus, the only perfect person in history, manage to attract the notoriously imperfect? Good question. But it's an easy answer. The answer is love. Real, risky, reaching out kind of love. Once there was a kid from Chicago who walked miles in the cold to attend D.L. Moody Sunday School. Someone asked him why he traveled so far when there were other Sunday schools closer by. He replied, well, because they love a feller over there. Wow. This is what thieves and prostitutes and gang members and drug dealers all sensed in Jesus. He loved a feller. He loved them. Jesus was able to reach sinners because of his love. You know, this is what today's church planners attempt to do. They want to reach people, but they do so by being relevant. That's the key word today. The idea is to play the sinner's style of music or to speak in cool language or or maybe to identify culturally in some way. But I'm telling you, nothing captures the heart of a man more than knowing he's loved. Nothing is more relevant to sinners than to know that they're loved and that they can be forgiven. Well, the Jewish leaders, they recognized this magnetism. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receives sinners and he eats with them. These legalists, they didn't grasp love. Judaism was more about law than about love. Sadly, their religion had nothing really to say to sinners. To become a part of Judaism, you first had to clean up your act and earn your place and pass the rituals. Sinners were always left on the outside looking in. The notion of a God who went out of his way to love and search for lost sinners, to restore them to his family, this was unheard of among the Jews. And that's why these three parables in this chapter were so revolutionary. So Jesus spoke this parable to them saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one 
which is lost until he finds it. You know, I heard a shepherd once explain how a sheep gets lost. He nibbles his way into trouble. He moves from one tuft of grass to another to another until he's through the fence and he's lost his bearings. He wanders off because of his foolishness. Sound familiar? Likewise, there are many people today who've strayed from God down the slippery slope. They inched away. The slide was almost imperceptible at the time. They walked away from God in itsy-bitsy steps. You know, like falling asleep on a raft out in the middle of the ocean. When you wake up, you've drifted so far from shore, you can't get back on your own. That's what happens to people. But there's a lifeguard on duty. Hey, call him a shepherd. That's what he's called in this parable. He loves that lone lost sheep to such an extent that he's willing to leave the herd to fetch that one lost sheep. Well, verse 5 tells us, and when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. I love that. The shepherd doesn't even make the wayward sheep walk back on his own. Oh, no, he hoists him up on his shoulders and he carries him home. He even throws a party. For when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just persons who need no repentance. Wow. You know, the Pharisees, they also had an adage. This was their saying. There is joy before God when those who provoke him perish from the world. That was the Pharisaical saying. Jesus played off their quotation in order to express God's true heart. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. That's the heart of God. Well, Verse 8 tells us, Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? You know, a sheep gets lost through its foolishness. You lose a coin, though, by carelessness. When Jewish women got married, they wore a headdress that consisted of, oh, ten or more coins. To lose a coin was the equivalent of a woman losing her wedding ring. This was an accident. She was careless. She was negligent. But when she realizes it's gone, man, she's frantic. She starts sweeping the house. She searches everywhere. She turns everything upside down in order to find that which was so valuable to her. Well, and when she found it, she called her friends and neighbors together saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. And then Jesus says, Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Heaven throws a party when one sinner turns from their sin and comes back to God. Heaven throws a party. Horns go off and confetti falls. And balloons fill the air right there in heaven. It's like a New Year's Eve in Times Square. And you know, we should get equally excited when a friend repents. I love it whenever we have an altar call and people respond and everybody claps. It's not something we necessarily coach people to do. It's just spontaneous. They want to throw a party. They want to express their approval and their joy. Heaven is, is like that. Heaven is like a party. Joy explodes in the heart of God when the lost are found. 
Verse 11, then he said, a certain man had two sons. Now take note, there were two sons. We usually focus on one of the boys, the younger one, the prodigal. But we're going to find that the second son also plays a crucial role in this story. Well, the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together. Obviously, he's moving out now. He's gathered everything together. He's packed up. He's tired of the old man's rules. You know, he's going to be his own man. He's going to live out on his own. He's going to live his own life for a change. And he journeyed to a far country. Didn't just go down the street. No, he wanted to get as far away from home as he could. He journeyed to a far country. And there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. It's really a play on words in the Greek. The word prodigal means wasteful. And so old wasteful wasted his life away. You know, for a season, this young man, he financed the porn shops and the brothels. He ran up a huge bar tab. Boy, he partied hardy. He wasted not only his wealth, but he wasted his mind and his health and his spirit. At Fling's End, he was a shell of the man that he'd been before. Verse 14, but when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Isn't this interesting? Isn't this an interesting culmination of circumstances? His wasteful and and his his wasteful life and a slumping economy hit simultaneously. They reached their peak at the same time. So now he's out of money and he can't get a job. God's orchestrating his circumstances to bring him to rock bottom. Well, then he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. Finally gets a job, but he'd been better off without one. This was the most humiliating job a Jew could actually accept. Jews were forbidden to eat pork. And here this guy is. He's out in a pig, in a pigsty, feeding the pigs. This is not what he had in mind when he, when he thought of bringing home the bacon, trust me. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. Notice that last line. No one gave him anything. Oh, trust me, while this guy had the money, he had friends. You bet he did. But when the funds dried up, so did the fun. Where's the love now? Where's the posse? Suddenly the boy's posse has disappeared. He's on his own now. No one stood with him. It's been said, only after you hit rock bottom are you willing to look up. Apparently, that was the case with the prodigal son. Verse 17. But when he came to himself. I love that. Finally, the boy came to his senses. It hit him. He said, how many of my father's hired servants have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. Man, when he came to his senses, he remembered his father. 
You know, folks who worked for his dead were treated like kings compared to his own deplorable conditions. Maybe I can go home. And he arose and he came to his father. You know, it reminds me of Romans chapter 2 verse 4 where Paul there tells us that it's the goodness of God that leads a man to repentance. When this bad boy recalled his dad's kindness, it humbled him, caused him to head home. That's what brings people back. It's when they know God's grace, when they hear of God's grace, when they see God's forgiveness, when they believe that, yes, he'll take them back, then then they're willing to turn home. He decided to take his chances with dad. Dad was a kind man. And, of course, here's a good example of baseball in the Bible. I don't know if you ever thought about this, but as I read it, the prodigal son here made a home run. Came all the way home. You know, the Jewish Talmud, it also tells a story of a prodigal who returned home, hoping that his dead would restore him as a son. The father took him back, but not as a son, just as a servant. In the mind of the Pharisee, God could forgive a sinner, but he forever forfeited his right to be a son and to really enjoy the blessings of his father. Full sonship was out of the question for someone who had lived such a prodigal life. Sonship was reserved for the Pharisees, those that had remained true, not the sinners. But this was not the portrait of God that Jesus is about to paint with his brush. Jesus says, But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him, and he had compassion. And he ran, and he fell on his neck, and he kissed him. Years ago, someone wrote a song entitled, The Day God Ran. You know, God is never in a hurry. Why would God ever need to run? Well, here his heart provokes it when he sees this prodigal son humbling himself and coming home. Even when the son was a great way off, His father saw him. It implies that he was looking, that he was waiting, that he was hoping for his son to turn down that corner and start home. It was the longings of love. I imagine this kid, he's walking down the street, his head's down, he's beaten up with shame. His feet are kicking the dirt. In his mind, he's rehearsing his apology over and over. He's just hoping that his father is going to agree to meet him, that maybe he'll take him back as a servant. What a surprise, though, when he sees his dad running down the driveway toward him. Before he even says a word, dad hits him with a bear hug and smothers him with affection. Boy, this is how God responds when one sinner, when you return, when I return, when just one sinner returns and comes back to him. He smothers us with affection. Verse 22, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight and am no longer worthy to be called your son. He's about to get out the next phrase. If you'll just let me be your servant. But the father doesn't let him finish his sentence. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. The family ring was a symbol of sonship. The father isn't just rehiring a servant. No, he's restoring a son. 
Then he says, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. And just like heaven, a party breaks out. (laughs) Wow. He's restored not just as a servant, but he's restored to full sonship. He gets a place again at the family table. He gets restored as the father's son. What grace, what mercy. Of course, it reminds me of the Sunday school teacher who was quizzing her class. She said, boys and girls, who was sorry when the prodigal son returned home? One little boy raised his hand and he answered, the fatted calf. (laughs) And I bet he was. That is an excellent answer. But the answer the teacher expected is found in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field, and he came, and he drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing, and so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf, but he was angry and would not go in. He pouts out on the porch. Therefore, therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. Now, you need to understand, this older son had lived in his father's house, had worked in his father's fields, had eaten at his father's table, but he had never really understood his father's heart. That can happen. In real life, the Pharisees were the elder brothers. They were proud of how they self-righteously served God, yet in truth, they didn't even know him. The elder brother understood his father's love. If he had understood his father's love, he would have joined the party. Instead, he sat out on the porch and pouted. The Pharisees, like the older brother, they spent so much time trying to earn their father's favor that they never really stopped to appreciate and enjoy his mercy. You see, that happens to religious people. They're busy trying to prove their goodness and bolster their spiritual pride instead of admitting their sin and receiving God's grace. There's a little bit of prodigal son in all of us. We need to admit it and come home. Verse 29, And so he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandment in any time. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, You killed the fatted calf for him. Imagine the Jews. This is is the picture of the Pharisees. Jesus is comparing them to the older brother. And I hope you feel the boy's bitterness. It was the same bitterness the Pharisees had toward Jesus and toward his grace to these prostitutes and these down and out. Can you feel this boy's bitterness? Notice he doesn't say, my brother came home. He said, this son of yours came home my oh my his heart is so full of self-righteousness there's no room for any grace and the father said to the older brother son you are always with me and all that I have is yours it was right that we should make merry and be glad for your brother was dead 
Now he's alive again. And he was lost. Now he's found. One commentator writes, In this chapter there are four lost items. A sheep, a coin, a prodigal son, and an elder brother. The first three are obviously lost. The fourth is lost and doesn't know it. He's the tragic one. He doesn't have any awareness of his lostness. He never strayed or broke the rules, and yet he missed out on the gift of the Father's extravagant love. You see, you don't have to be an alcoholic or a compulsive gambler or a criminal to be a prodigal son. The far country isn't measured in miles. No, it's measured to the degree to which you separated yourself from the grace and mercy of God. You may have lived your whole life in a Christian family and in the confines of a Bible-believing, spirit-filled church. But if your heart is cold and you're arrogant and you're self-righteous and you're judgmental and you're trusting in your own efforts, something is desperately wrong. You're an elder brother, my friend. You see, the younger brother was unrighteous, but the older brother was self-righteous. And in the eyes of God, they both are just as despicable. Both separate a person from God. For some of you, it may be time to stop looking down your nose at other sinners and admit that you are one too. Confess and repent. For the Father desires to throw a party for you. Chapter 16 opens with another parable. You know, Shakespeare wrote a comedy entitled The Taming of the Shrew. Well, you could call this parable the taming of the shrewd. Jesus also said to his disciples, There was a certain rich man who had a steward, and an accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. Now, a steward was an ancient office manager in essence. A rich man would hire him and then authorize him to handle his business. And his job was to be faithful to the master. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, God calls us his stewards. We've been entrusted with his business. And it's our job also to be faithful to God and to do what he's asked us to do. We need to please the master. Now, for some reason, the steward in this parable, he had failed at his job. And so he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I can't dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I mean, apparently this steward was afraid of that mean Mexican. You know his name? Manuel Labor. Didn't like that guy. This man was too good to collect carts down in the Walmart parking lot. He didn't want a job like that. Yet he and his family are now about to be put out on the streets. What's he going to do? In verse 4, he concocts a plan. He's shrewd. He says, I have resolved what to do. That when I am put out of the stewardship, that they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write out 50. Makes a deal. 
Now, 100 measures of olive oil would equal about 800 gallons. It would take 450 trees to harvest that amount. This would have been the yearly profit on an average olive grove. This is a good deal for this debtor. He can cut his debt in half by acting right now. Well, then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And so he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. 100 measures of wheat equaled about 1,000 bushels, which represented the yield on 100 acres. This guy now, he can cut his debt by 20%, because, but because he's dealing with so much more volume, he may even save more money. Once again, the steward was doing this debtor a huge favor. And so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. Now, here's a trait we don't usually link with godliness. Shrewdness. The steward was cagey and crafty and resourceful and opportunistic and clever. The Greek word translated shrewd is phronimos. It means practical intelligence. We would translate it common sense. Or maybe street smarts. Someone once said there are two types of people. Those who can do stuff and those who can get stuff done. Well, this man knew how to get stuff done. He knew how to use the system to accomplish his purposes. He was a survivor. He was a shrewd saint. Almost said it. Probably should. A shrewd dude. How about that? You know, yet Christians are not always known for their shrewdness, are we? Christians are not always known for their street smarts and their common sense and their business savvy. Jesus concludes, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Guys, even though we're citizens of heaven, we still have to navigate life on earth. You know, some believers, they're, they're nice people who love God, but they've got zero business sense. They always pay list price. Why? Negotiate is not a sin. A Christian can be hard-nosed and soft-hearted at the same time. We can be true to the values of heaven while still being shrewd in matters on earth. I love what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. There he warns us, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents... And harmless as doves. As I see it, this servant was shrewd in at least five ways. You could jot them down. First, he had an eye on the future. He was looking around the corner. He was thinking ahead. He had a backup plan in case it was needed. He had to use it. Second, he didn't burn his bridges. You know, you can learn a lot about a man by how he handles bridges. Which bridges he burns, I'm sorry, which bridges he builds, which bridges he crosses, and which bridges he burns. This man doesn't burn his bridges. He makes friends that will help him later. Third, he acts quickly and he seizes an opportunity. If he, had he waited another few days, perhaps he would have no longer had the authority to negotiate the deal. He seized his opportunity. Fourth, he created a win-win situation. Notice this, he makes the debtors happy, he makes his master happy, 
And in the end, he becomes happy. And then fifth, he followed his heart, but he used his head. You know, God guides us in two ways, through quiet times and through quick wits. Follow Christ. Just don't leave your common sense behind. Well, verse 9, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. In other words, a cagey Christian will use earthly means to accomplish eternal purposes. He says, he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. You know, faithfulness tends to be a character trait, not an isolated incident. You know, if you're faithful in one area, you're probably going to end up being faithful in lots of areas. It's going to show up all over your life. He says, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? Now, Jesus is saying, if you can't handle money, how can you be trusted with really important matters like eternal life and like the gospel and like spiritual issues? Hey, hey, you can't really teach me how to thrive spiritually if you can't survive physically. Doesn't make sense. A church that mishandles money will probably mismanage ministry. It applies to churches too. The least we can do is handle the, the business side of things, the physical side of things. If we prove faithful in that area, then chances are we'll be faithful in the really important things, the matters of the kingdom. Well, verse 13 No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. And as we've pointed out many times before, here is how we know that God is against bigamy, that God prohibits two wives. How do we know that? Because Jesus tells us no man can serve two masters. So, there we have it. No, he tells us what he means. He says, you cannot serve God and mammon, which means money. Can't serve God and money. In reality, Jesus is saying, we can't serve God and gold. You know, we all want to please God, and we all need to make money, don't we? But eventually, there's a conflict. There's going to be a rub. What's more important, that promotion or your witness? Your integrity or the job security? Pocketing that bonus or giving that tithe? What's more important to you? At some point, every one of us has to choose if they're going to serve God or if they're going to serve money. Here's the deal. Make money, just don't make more of it than you should. Don't make it a bigger deal than you should. Money's a tool to be used by God's glory, not an idol to be worshipped. Well, verse 14. Now the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, also heard all these things, and they derided him. Oh my, they got on his case. One paraphrase reads, they rolled their eyes dismissing him as hopelessly out of touch. They just wrote him off. They felt so superior to Jesus. 
You know, we, we need to make money. He, he doesn't understand. We've got bills to pay. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The ancient Jews, like some misguided American Christians today, considered wealth a sign of God's blessing. Jesus said, not so. God is concerned with the contents of your heart, not the contents of your wallet. When God judges us, when he wraps the measure around us, always remember, he doesn't wrap the the measuring tape around your wallet. He doesn't wrap it around your credit score. He doesn't wrap it around your net worth. He doesn't wrap it around the car you drive. No, he measures your heart. That's what matters to God. Verse 16, the law and the prophets were until John Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. Are you pressing into the kingdom of God? You know, the Greek term here translated pressing, it means to act with force or to move violently. Satan has a hold on us. That's why when God saves us, he rips us out of Satan's clutches. It's an act of violence. Spiritually speaking, salvation is a violent, forceful act. It's like a jailbreak. Nobody just strolls into God's kingdom. Peace with God requires pressing toward him. Think of the launch of a NASA rocket, space shuttle. It takes a violent explosion. It takes this violent upward thrust to break that rocket free from the earth's atmosphere. And the gravitational pull. And likewise, a controlled burn in our hearts is what's required to break free from the gravitational pull of sin. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. When you're born again, the Spirit supplies that that sudden upward thrust that breaks the hold of sin and Satan in your life, that launches you into an orbit around God. What Jesus says, And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. The yod, the letter yod, was the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The tittle was the squiggly stroke on the bottom of the smallest letter. So the tittle, the yod was the smallest letter. The tittle was the smallest stroke on the smallest letter. Jesus is saying God's word is so infallible, so unfailable that not even the smallest stroke will fail, that it's reliable. Not just the, as the, as the rabbi said, not just the sentences are inspired, not just the words are inspired, not just the letters are inspired, but the spaces between the letters are even inspired. <laughs> I like that. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery and whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery now it's interesting but it's not surprising really when you think about it that on this occasion Jesus inserts a teaching on divorce right in the middle of a discussion on marriage I'm I'm sorry he inserts this teaching on divorce 
right in the middle of a discussion on money. That's what's not surprising. And why is that? Well, if you've read the statistics, you know one of the most common reasons for couples to get divorced are financial problems. Far and, far and away above sexual dysfunctions or in-law problems or, or communication issues. Oh, no. I mean, far and way above any of those issues. The number one common, most common reason for divorce is financial problems. In some marriages, it's not until death do us part. It's until debt do us part. Bad decisions. Big bills. Burdensome loans. Impulsive shopping. Like the man who said, my wife, is, she acts like a congressman. She keeps bringing bills to the house. Well, these kinds of problems, they act like a wet blanket. They just kind of get thrown over a marriage and kind of smother out the, the fires of love. Jesus reminds us that financial struggles don't justify ending a marriage. To divorce a spouse for an unbiblical reason like money and then to remarry another is the equivalent of adultery. The Bible, Malachi chapter 2 tells us that God hates divorce. Couples can overcome financial pressures by setting up a budget and cutting up the credit cards and getting some help, find some counseling. You can overcome these problems through diligence, not divorce. Now, there was a young pastor. He was serving in his first church, and he was worried about offending the members of the church. And so he closed his sermon with these words. Now, my friends, if you don't believe these, if you don't believe these truths, there may be Grave eschatological consequences. Well, afterwards, an old farmer, he came up to the preacher and he asked him, he said, Preacher, by grave eschatological consequences, did you mean hell? The timid preacher sort of stuttered around, well, well, yes, I suppose so. The guy replied, if that's what you meant, you better start saying so. Well, Jesus had no problems just saying so. Did you know Jesus talked about hell more than he talked about heaven? He talked about hell. He was never afraid of offending somebody's sensibility. Jesus knew, and why? Jesus knew firsthand about hell. That's why, that's why it was so burning on his heart, literally. That's why he was so concerned about hell. He knew firsthand the horrors of hell. He created hell, not for mankind. The Bible's clear. He created hell for the devil and his angels. And thus he understood its horrors and its torments. And this is why he was so diligent and passionate about warning us. In 2008, a survey revealed that 74% of Americans believe in heaven. While just 59% of Americans believe in hell. And here's the surprising stat, or maybe it's not surprising. Of the 59% that believe in hell, less than 5% admit that they really think they're going to go there. Less than 5%. 
Sadly, I'm afraid the percentage will be much higher. Jesus spoke so much about hell because he doesn't want a single human being to end up there. Luke chapter 16 gives us a glimpse of hell's horrors as a deterrent. Now, some people view this next story as a parable, and yet in all other parables, Jesus never uses a proper name. Here he mentions Lazarus. I believe rather than a parable, this is a real account of two men and their journey into the afterlife. Well, verse 19 begins. There was a certain man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And if poor Lazarus's plight had not been bad enough, moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. A rich man lived in opulence and luxury while the poor man lived right outside his gates, the gates of his own house, in object poverty. As the prodigal son ate the pea shells thrown to the swine, Lazarus ate out of this rich man's garbage. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. His body, that is, a different plight was reserved for his soul. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Now understand, God's plan for man has progressed through the ages. And conditions in the afterlife are no exception. You see, eternity is under construction. In Old Testament times, when people died, they went to a place called Hades. Or in Hebrew, it was the word Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. Hades was a duplex. One side was what's called Abraham's bosom. It was a place of comfort and rest and refreshment and pleasure. Across a wide expanse on the other side, the dark side, this was called the bottomless pit or the abuso. This was a place of torment. The rich man, he ended up in this bottomless pit. And Jesus describes his state as in torments. Notice the plural there. What's mentioned here in this, parable, in this story, not a parable, but this actual account. What's mentioned here is scorching heat and relentless thirst and eternal regret. But I want you to know, hell is full of multiple torrents, multiple sorrows and tortures. Hell has worms. It's the place where the worm dies not, Jesus says. Hell is perpetually boring. Hell is smothering darkness. It's like outer darkness. Here, a bottomless pit. Think about that for a minute. A bottomless pit has no bottom. That means there's nothing solid in hell. Imagine living forever, nothing solid around you, nothing to lean on, nothing to hold on to, nothing to stand on. Hell is just drifting aimlessly, 
never in control. Hell is dangling forever. Think about that. That's hell. Dangling forever. Worst of all, hell is a land of unfulfilled dreams. You're tortured by the what-ifs. Well, Jesus describes the rich man as being conscious of his own existence. We're told he lifted up his eyes. He he could see. He was aware of what was happening. Not not just on earth, mind you. but, But he was aware of what was happening in Abraham's bosom. He saw Abraham afar off in Lazarus. Notice the irony here. The former beggar is now being comforted while the former rich man is broiling like a piece of meat on a grill. That's when the rich man speaks out. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. Now here's a revealing insight. The rich man never asks to leave hell. Never does. He never argues that he's gotten what he doesn't deserve. He understands any relief at all here would be an act of mercy. Sadly, he realizes his need for mercy, though a little too late. In verse 25, Abraham replies, But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he is comforted and you are tormented. Boy, the tables will get turned in the afterlife, won't they? All of a sudden, the rich man is the beggar, and Lazarus is the rich man. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. So that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. Notice the sobering word here. Fixed. When a person dies, he doesn't end up a bodiless spirit with wanderlust. I mean, Uncle Joe doesn't get a weekend pass so that he can come back to earth and drop in on Junior's little little league baseball game. Oh, I'm glad Uncle Joe saw him hit those three home runs. No, he didn't. Uncle Joe's in heaven or he's in hell. You know, it's been 2,000 years since Jesus told this story. And you can be sure, the same rich man is still in the same torments. While the same Lazarus is still being comforted with the same comfort. And the same will be true a billion trillion years from now. You see, this is the grave consequence of death. When you pass from this life to the next, you forfeit any possibility of change. Your status suddenly becomes fixed forever. Don't overlook that word. There was a great gulf fixed. Lazarus isn't even allowed to pay a visit to warn his family. Notice. Then the rich man said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. Abraham knew faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. People get saved by hearing God's word, and allowing the seed to find fertile soil. 
the soil of repentance and believing in that word and trusting in that word and receiving God's word into their life. That's how people are saved. Not by seeing miracles. The people who saw, saw Jesus break the five loaves and two fish and fed 5,000, they forsook him the next day. Miracles don't produce faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. He says, they got Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. And that was proven just a few days later. For another man named Lazarus, Mary and Martha's brother, did rise from the dead. But how did they treat that Lazarus? John 12 verse 10 says that the Jews plotted to kill him because he was turning folks away from the Jews to to Jesus. I'm telling you, if people have a hard heart, they can witness a thousand miracles and they can still harden their heart to the truth. Again, Paul says in Romans 10 verse 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. It's not miracles, but it's God's word that provokes saving faith. Now, as I said earlier, The afterlife is a work in progress. At the Last Supper, Jesus told his disciples, I go to prepare a place for you. He was speaking of heaven. Abraham's bosom was the holding tank until sin was fully atoned for. After Jesus paid the price once and for all on the cross to forgive our sin, that's when Ephesians 4 tells us that he descended into Hades. And he rounded up all of those who had believed in the promise of salvation. Jesus cleared out Abraham's bosom and he took the believers that had been waiting there in faith on into heaven. He brought them into the throne room of God and into the presence of God. Thus today, when a person dies, their body returns to the dust, but Jesus immediately judges their spirit. Believers now go straight into heaven. No longer do they go to Hades, to this holding tank. Jesus has now paved the way. Today when you die, if you trust in Christ, you go straight into the presence of God. Unbelievers, though, continue to suffer these same torments in Hades. Eventually, Hades gets cast into the lake of fire. And that becomes its end. But for now... Believers go straight into the presence of God. Unbelievers go to this same place and join the rich man and experience these torments. I trust that you're headed to heaven. Father, we thank you for your words tonight. We pray that you'll bless our our time of discussion and fellowship. Lord, uh, we love you. We thank you for your word. Continue to speak to us as we meditate on these things. In Jesus' name, amen.